welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and this is my podcast where I get to talk to coaches about coaching and today we have got a golf pro from New South Wales on the line, Khan Pullen. Thanks for coming in, Khan, and talking to me. Uh, thanks for having me on, Brent. Really looking forward to it. I think we've got some pretty cool stories to share with you. You've had a few diverse roles through your years as a PGA professional, so I'm keen to explore that. But for the people who don't know you out there, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, I guess it depends on how far you want to go back. But I guess, um, you know, I got into golf around about sort of 13, 14 years of age. Uh, played many probably a multi-sport athlete, I guess you would say, uh, these days. Primarily played sort of soccer in winter and baseball in summer, throwing a bit of tennis and swimming and all those other things that we do here. Um, and I guess, you know, it's probably a little pertinent to the role that I have now, but I remember uh, I was a reasonable sort of baseball player as a young kid and um, went for a trial in the state team for, for the baseball team and never got selected. And uh, it was sort of the the coach's son that got the position that I was in. Um, <laughs> so pretty much all said to mum and dad, I don't want to play any more team sports. I want to play an individual sport where I basically can control my own destiny a little bit. So that ended up being golf. Uh, my dad uh, played golf. He hadn't played for a long time uh, when I wanted to get into it, but he played sort of socially. He was left-handed, but uh, I didn't start as a left-hander. I had to get some right-handed clubs and Went out and played a little local muni course, Liverpool golf course, uh, which uh, just a little, as I said, public course, nine holes. And pretty much from that point on, I was pretty much all hooked hooked on the sport and it became pretty much all my whole uh, obsession from that point onwards, pretty much. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So the team sport obviously left a bit of a sour taste in your mouth, I'm sure, with um, team choices going that way. That's obviously a bit challenging for you as a kid. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I really, I really enjoyed it, but I guess, um, you know, that um, challenge, I guess I'm kind of naturally a bit of an introverted person as well. So I guess golf sometimes can tend to lend itself to those introverted type people that just want to have some time on their own. And I guess I found in golf that, I mean, obviously you're playing with others, but it's you're sort of totally in control of your own. But I guess the practice side of it, you're just doing it on your own. And I guess I just love the idea of just being able to go out on my own and, you know, not relying on anyone else to throw any balls to me or to do whatever I could just go up and, uh, you know, spend my time as many hours as I pretty much want to just, you know, playing and practicing and, and all those type of things as well. So I guess that's sort of part of golf really sort of clicked with me as well, just to be able to do my own thing. I'm certainly on that same page when it comes to doing it by yourself. I, I do enjoy that side of side of golf. That's um, it's a it's a pretty cool sport for that type of personality, which I am as well. So that's um, that's pretty cool. So tell me about getting into the traineeship. Where did you do your traineeship and who did you do it under? And did you, did you stay in the Sydney area or did you go somewhere else? No, I stayed in the Sydney area. I had a, you know, um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do coming to the end of year 12. Um, I did know in the end, not, not to very late, that golf is what I want to pursue as a profession. But uh, I guess back in the day then there wasn't too many other pathways. I certainly wasn't good enough to be <laughs> going to any tour schools or anything like that at that particular point in time. And it wasn't too much about US college and it wasn't really too much with, you know, institute programs and all those type of things as well. So my parents took me up to the local PGA member at uh, New Brighton Golf Club where I was uh, a junior member up and uh, sought the advice of Carl Francis, who was the head pro there at that time and what I should do. And he suggested that I, um, you know, maybe look at doing a PGA traineeship. Uh, which I did. Um, Kyle actually moved away. There was a changing of uh, he moved and went to, got the head pro 
job at Concord not too long after that. And I actually started doing a little bit of uh, work in the greenkeeper shed down at, uh, at New Brighton initially. Um, and then Bruce Smith, who took over from uh, from Kyle as the pro at New Brighton Golf Club, um, said, look, I, I will be looking for a trainee commencing next year. How would you like to come and start in the pro shop? You know, in about April, I really wasn't enjoying working on the green shed, uh, cutting the rough and doing all those type of things. So that wasn't going to be my work. thing. <laughs> that wasn't... Wasn't going to be my go. So from that, uh, I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, so I went and started working in the pro shop sort of April in that year after I finished um, uh, my HSC and, and started my traineeship the year after with, uh, as, as said, Bruce Smith, that was my uh, PGA pro that I'd done it under. Nice. So three years straight through and then out on tour and out, out playing some golf, I'm assuming. Yeah, I did Hit a little bit. Everyone tries, don't they, early on? Everyone goes out there and has a has a crack at that playing side of it. Yeah, look, and um, that was that was certainly me. I'd sort of saved a little bit of money through my sort of traineeship and um, had enough to try and ex- went up to Malaysia and played, which is, I guess, part of now what they call the Asian Development Tour. But then it was only sort of in Malaysia. So I went up there and played eight events up there and kind of enjoyed that experience, other for the point where I got quite ill for a, for a few days up there with with food poisoning. So that was, uh, I guess, a real ex, uh, experience into that. Um, you know, I just played pro-amps, played all uh, a lot of the Von Nider events, which it was in those, the Tier 2 events back in the day. And I basically had a, a crack at playing for, oh, I would say, a good sort of two to three years to I pretty much all <laughs> ran out of money. And realised I wasn't good enough, pretty much. Um, and yeah, then I sort of, you know, explored other options. I guess, um, uh, I guess, you know, in the golf industry. It's um, it's it can be a bit of a shock to the system sometimes when you get out of the trainee program and decide you want to go and play, and you start to see how good those actual players really are. It's um, it, it, it's a challenging space. Yeah, it is. And look, oh, there was a, uh, I won't dive too much into it, but I had a few sort of other things life things going at that time I sort of engaged and and all those type of things as well and you know not only a great deal of money so there was other sort of commitments um uh that I was sort of was going to be facing coming up and um yeah decided to to go somewhere else that sort of didn't work out that uh, <laughs> that engagement but yeah by that time I really didn't have any have too much money to go and you know pursue playing anymore any rate and as I said I didn't realize it was you know probably wasn't going to be good enough but probably reflecting back now I wish I'd give, my, give myself a few more years because I think you know I didn't really have a great deal of experience not starting really playing the game of golf till I was 13 or 14 and really not playing any more competitive 10 years later and realising what you sort of know now and how long it sort of takes, I probably cut myself short, you know, a few years probably. But again, you still need, and I appreciate, you know, I guess in the role I'm in now, you know, the financial resources and all those things that are required to actually be able to support yourself, especially, you know, if uh, you're not fortunate enough to, you know, have other sources of income coming in to help you with that. It's a it's a hard space because it is, and it does take a, a to, does take some time sometimes to be to turn into a player, yeah. and if you don't have that cash there, um, you you just if you think back, how many careers could have been cut off because they just don't have the cash there to be able to go out there and keep grinding along, and um, which is obviously where the Golf Australia programs come into it, which we'll talk about as we go along with you. Absolutely. Um, a bit further on, but um, yeah, it's it, it's it's hard if, if you if you don't have that cash behind you to actually keep grinding it out. There, so it's a challenging space. So, how did you find playing th- through Asia? 
you said you got sick. Was it a shock to the system? Yeah, after coming from Australia. It sure was. I mean, I probably, you know, I don't remember specific times, but I'm sure I've had food poisoning before, but I definitely don't remember anything as extreme as what I was when I was over there. Pretty much I laid up in bed for three to four days. I was fortunate because the tour was sort of three weeks and then we come back to uh, Kuala Lumpur for a while and I had a week there before we sort of had to take off for the next three tournaments. So I kind of had nothing on, but I just remember uh, not pretty much being able to get out of bed and spending my time between the bed and the bathroom for about three or four days and having hot sweats and cold shivers and that was kind of it and had to sort of eventually go and seek out a doctor, which I was a little bit nervous about to try and uh, get a little shot uh, in the you-know-where to try and uh, make me feel a little bit better. So I was a little bit nervous about getting that done as well, but uh, sort of started to feel a little bit better from that point. But, yeah, I guess these are just some of the things that um, – you know, I was very raw and didn't know anything about that kind of stuff. You know, hadn't done much travel, you know, as a young kid, as a family, internationally, anything like that, you know, even just general sort of family holidays. So there is certainly much more to managing about being on tour rather than just sort of golfing your ball around the golf course. There's so many other things that you need to manage in that space, that's for sure. I'm sure you can draw on all that experience when it comes to coaching your players, but my own personal experience was that was in between Taiwan and China. So coaching in Taiwan, you couldn't drink the water, but you could clean your teeth in it. So it was okay to brush your teeth in. China, China, you couldn't. <laughs> and I did that, had that same problem. Um, trying to get time between the, the toilet and the bathroom was always a... And the bed and the bedroom was a challenge. <laughs> getting getting sick over there, so I don't envy you over there at all, mate. It's um, it's a it's a, it's a tough space to be in. Tough times. Yeah, absolutely. So the playing obviously didn't work out. So we came back to coaching. So tell me about the first step that, into the coaching world after your playing career is finished. Oh look, I probably initially had a number of like assistant slash teaching pro roles. Um, I was doing a little bit of that sort of at. Uh, New Brighton uh, during that time when I sort of was playing so I was trying to manage that a little bit as well uh, and I'd done a little bit of that when my sort of playing days were over. Um, my first real I guess you'd say full-time employment after stop playing in the golf industry was uh, with Wayne Worthy out at Lena Golf Club so I was the assistant pro there and teaching pro there so primarily doing junior clinics and ladies clinics and those type of things coaching the pennant teams you know one-on-one -on -one lessons and those type of things so I was there for uh, um, a good sort of 12 months. Um, I then had the opportunity, uh, unique opportunity, um, uh, to do a little bit of work with the Jack Newton Academy, which was based out of Riverside Oaks. Um, and that was a full-time live-in program where uh, Peter Van Wiegen was running that then, and I knew Peter through my traineeship. And uh, it was a partnership that Jack had uh, struck up with a Korean business partner where he would bring some Koreans down. They'd live in at Riverside Oaks full-time and basically learn to play themselves. They come down with various playing levels from, you know, good A-grade golfers to, you know, not playing much at all, learn to play and then learn to coach and go back to career and basically be teaching professionals. So uh, I really enjoyed that. I basically lived out at Riverside Oaks myself from, you know, drove out Sunday night and um, drove back home Friday night. And it was probably my first real furor into sort of full-time coaching. And I knew that's kind of where I wanted to be. Um, I'm a terrible retailer. Uh, can't sell, <laughs> can't sell anything. Um, so I knew retail was never going to be my my area. And uh, look, I, while I did enjoy sort of uh, coaching the let's call it your, your club member, my passion was really in I guess you know development of 
development programs, juniors, and those was you know that were pursuing, I guess let's call them serious goals as you like, um, that were really interested in in improving rather than I guess just the quick half an hour or one hour lessons or whatever it may be. So it's definitely and and more along with. I guess in the end, the, the better player as opposed to the, the you know the B or C grade or whatever it may, may have been. But I did have a number of other roles. You know, I worked at the Lakes and Bankstown Golf Club as well. A couple of things at the Lakes. Uh, a couple of times I was at the Lakes, which was great. Um, but I guess again to cut the to I guess skip a few years sort of forward. Um, you know, I had the opportunity then uh, from sort of 2000 through to early 2003 to work with Jack Newton Junior Golf full time, initially as a development officer, which pretty much will see me going out to schools five days a week and doing modified golf activities. But it also did give me the opportunity to go and do see like country camps, work with the sports high schools uh, and have that opportunity. I was working with Glenn Whittle, who's another PGA member who was running, uh, was the head coach of that stage. I was the assistant. Glenn then moved on to run the Sweeps Junior Program with the PGA then, and I sort of took over as the head coach role of Jack Newton Junior Golf. And I guess that's where my uh, coaching um, knowledge expanded, but also coaching administration, uh, which is kind of the role that I'm sort of in now, uh, expanded as well, and knowledge of that role sort of comes through. And um, again, that sort of finished up, and I had a few sort of varying roles again through to sort of 2008, more assistance roles, and that's where I again began back with Jack Newton Junior Golf. I got an invite to come back. Um, by that time, they had an influx of funding through a private benefactor and the role had sort of totally changed and I was pretty much all um, managing the coaching programs then, which had, had expanded. There was regional academies up here in New South Wales and I had a lot more sort of hands-on coaching with talented juniors myself at that time. And I pretty much all um, yeah started there and then a number of other roles with Golf New South Wales and Golf Australia sort of come along after that as well with... Um, um, as a high performance manager, so kind of where we're up to now. Yeah. Really cool. Plenty of things to uh, talk about in in that um, uh, employment history. Yeah. But just quickly, the Riverside Oak Space the, that golf club's probably changed hands a few times over the years. I know the company I was employed by in China bought it um, in two thousand and nine ish. Um, so yeah, it's obviously it was in. Korean hands at one stage there as well, and it's changed hands a few times over the years. Yeah, it has. I think there's a New Zealand New Zealand guy owned it there for a while as well. I can't remember directly who owned it that time, but it was a really good facility for that um, type of business. You know, they, they could actually live in there. Um, there wasn't two golf courses at the time. There was only the one, but there was a good practice facility. There was total nearly like exclusivity. It, the, the practice range is actually over where the new Bungle course is was pretty much exclusive to the academy. Um, so it was great. And it was just great to have. There was probably, you know, uh, there were some local kids there as well, but mostly Koreans. We had probably 15 or 20 kids there at any one time. And it was, yeah, it was just good to be in that sort of full-time environment, really. And, the, um, yeah, it was a, just a good opportunity. Yeah, that's cool. We The, the, the course I was at in China, it snowed um, for – obviously part of the year so we brought them down to australia to train when it was cold so yeah. and as you said perfect place because you've got houses on, on course there that, that they can stay in accommodation great practice set up and they could play golf all day every day it was it was pretty cool and they were pretty obsessed with the kangaroos as you can see uh, yes yes it was a constant uh, yeah distraction if you'd like to call it that yeah 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 so that was pretty cool so um how did you find coaching the school groups so obviously you said one of your early jobs with the jack newton foundation was to go into schools five days a week yep. um 
how was that? How did you cope with that? Uh, interesting. Like, you, um, you know, you're, a lot of the times you might have been one with 25 to 30 kids in the class. You know, most of the time there was obviously a teacher there as well. You just had to be very organised, I found. Like, you just had to be there early, have the safe, safety structures in place, a definite lesson plan. You obviously had to be good at, um, you know, communication and all those things, safety. So... Uh, by the time, you know, I wouldn't say I was an expert at it, but I'd done that many of them. And obviously I had the opportunity to see Glenn Whittle done it and learn off him uh, as well. So, uh, and Glenn was a real, I guess, you know, sort of um, kind of a leader in junior golf, especially at that grassroots and modified golf. I know Mark Holland done a little bit of stuff before that with Jack Newton as well before Glenn, but I got to learn a fair bit off Glenn. And I would say it's just making sure that you're organized, having the appropriate equipment, having a plan, and having good communication skills. It can be daunting initially, but, I, I you know, in the end, you, you really get to enjoy it. You know, you get to, um, you know, see the uh, the improvement they can. Because back in the time, then we're going into maybe three to five week programs. So you go back into the school, the same school three to five weeks. Uh, so you could get to see the improvement and the kids really enjoying it. Um, so, yeah, it was quite an enjoyable experience. I'd have to say I got burnt out pretty quick because it is high energy and all that sort of stuff. A lot of the times you might have been doing five or six classes in a day. And if, as I said, you're doing that four to five times a week, it's, uh, it's, uh, you can get burnt out pretty quickly doing it. That's for sure. Yeah. It, it certainly gives you respect for our teachers out there that get, um, that are doing that every day, day in, day out with, with primary school kids and high school kids, certainly a challenging space to be involved with. Yeah, that's right. But it is, as I said, it is enjoyable. And I guess you do feel like you're, for me as a PJ member, you know, I know part of it is to give back to the game and to try and grow the game. And I definitely felt like I had the ability to do that through that role, that's for sure. Um, I used to call the, the kids' clinics at schools control chaos. If you can keep it safe and set those rules up, but it is control chaos, basically. It's a, it's a, it's a hard space to be involved with full-time. Yeah, for sure. So how much of an uptake did you get from those clinics into, into golf? Do you, did, did, was that something that was tracked by the organisation? or? Oh, look, it's always has been a challenge by that. Um, initially, it was, um, you know, it's done a lot better now and, and credit to Peter and, and Jack Newton Junior Golf and I guess uh, – I spent a lot of time with Peter in that sort of space and it's certainly done a lot better now than what it was, but it was initially we might've just had a bit of paper that we handed out to the, to the kids at the end of the program and said, look, here's the local golf clubs. Here's some contact numbers off you go. But it was a lot more organized now um, in trying to, you know, do some initial engagement with the kids at the school, but really are trying to get them to the golf course as quickly as possible. Um, try and transition those kids to some early exposure at the school, but, then trying to get them to experience real golf, you know, hitting real golf balls in the real golf course environment and trying to actually get them and use them as a, I guess, a feeder program into the clubs, you know, cadet programs or beginner clinics or whatever they may may have had running at the time. So it is definitely a lot more structured and there is a direct more pathway into the golf clubs that has been set up. I know with Jack Newton Junior Golf and Golf Australia are trying to, to do those things around the country where it is a lot more... Oh, I guess easier pathway for the kids and parents to find out what that next step is. It's certainly easier that you can send them straight to a, a website now where they can just search up their their postcode and find the the closest centres that have got junior programs in place. So that's um, certainly an improvement. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like your 
roles, as you said, were heading down that more towards that high performance C type roles where you're dealing with players that are, as you said, are serious yeah. as opposed to that starting program. So um, you've had a few different roles in that space over the years. So tell me about some of those roles. So possibly some, maybe start with, say, Southwest Sydney Academy. Yeah. Was that that was the first one or? That was pretty much my first exposure. Um and that was probably even before my my Jack Newton days. That was probably my first exposure at that sort of type of program. Um, I had done some like um, they were called um, Rothman's camps and a number of things with Peter Knight, who was sort of the New South Wales coaching director at those times. So I've done a lot of um, camps, you know, week long camps and all those sorts of things with Peter up here in New South Wales. We had a program called the Talent Athlete Program where they'd go into the Sydney Academy of Sport and stay. So I had some exposure through that and through my, I guess, contact with Peter, who was sort of overseeing the regional academies in um, New South Wales at that point of time. And I lived out at sort of southwest Sydney and it was, he sort of recommended me for that particular role. So that was probably my first exposure to what you might call well, I call them now, they're probably the, the, the starting level of the high performance pathway here in New South Wales. So um, working with, you know, you know, might have been, I think, 12 kids uh, at that particular time. They were all sort of single figure markers. You know, we'd meet once a month on a Sunday afternoon. It was kind of my first exposure to an integrated program where they'd start having some opportunity to get some sports science and sports medicine exposure, some personal development exposure, you know, learning various things like media skills, but also learning more about you know, the um, physiotherapy and strength conditioning and psychology and nutrition and all those other elements, performance elements that go in to, I guess, the modern athletic golfer these days. So that was really a good eye-opener to me as well. And once I sort of had that, that's kind of where I knew from a career base, that's where I I liked and where I wanted to go because um, it piqued my interest then to start learning about those all those other areas as well. Like I think in a role like this, you certainly don't need to be an expert in all those areas, but you certainly need to have some level of knowledge in each of those various sort of areas. And I guess that's where I really found out, well, I think this is me. This is the, the career space that I'd sort of like to to work in. And um, I was fortunate enough to do that for a few years. And I think that sort of then led into the Jack Newton role that I had in early 2000s. Um, because as I said, when I moved out of that school role, I started to oversee the regional academies. I was going out to visit those regional academies, you know, the, the nine of them across um, New South Wales and, and running sort of coaching sessions, supporting the local coaches, the program coaches there, and really getting exposed to, you know, the talent of junior to under 18s, going to watch a lot of junior tournaments, talking with a lot of parents, interacting with a lot of other coaches about the development of those players. Um, and then definitely when I come back there again later in 2008, when the program had stepped up more and there was actually probably more budget because of the private benefactor, I started implementing state level development programs. So it was the regional academies. And then above that, we in, in, well, I commenced the Jack Newton Development Squad program, uh, where we pretty much all took the regional academy, same thing, but took it up to that next level of golfer, not just the best kids in the region, but then basically sort of picking, uh, you know, 20 kids from around the state to put in a similar type of program. So I was really fortunate through there then that you start actually having a lot more engagement with physios, working with sports psychologists, working with 3D people, working with nutritionists, getting to engage with a lot of other great coaches as well. So you really, I really got to, I guess, expand my knowledge base. No, uh, through that for sure. No, that's really really cool. I just wanted to touch back quickly on something you said earlier on. So, what was the change like in your coaching? So, you've gone from um, 
the t- typical golf coach and then being exposed to some more of this high performance stuff with Peter, who's on a, obviously a very good coach, been on the on the podcast as well and a great share of information and um, is a great person to chat to. So what changed in your coaching from that early exposure? Uh, I guess the integration is more than anything else. Um, and I certainly my knowledge become a lot more. I'd have to say, you know, <laughs> the PGA um, – uh, training program gives you a great grounding but you know when you start to dig down into some of these burrows of, of coaching you realize how much you don't know you think you know a lot but it's a case of you don't know what you don't know so you just start digging down in a lot more rabbit holes I started getting exposure to a lot more high level coaches than me you know as well and I just really had an interest I just had a I just had a real sort of thirst for knowledge I guess to try and learn them more and more so um, my coaching I think from a technical element became um, I guess more in depth when I had exposure to, you know, 3D people like Ryan Lumsden and Rob Neal and, and Mark Bull and guys like that. You just get to um, get knowledge from those guys that, you know, you just never had that opportunity before. Um, now, I guess I, th- I look at it more, um, you know, I guess you've only just got to watch the TV day. There's the, the tours these days. There's no one shoe fits all from a technical element. And I think there's so much more. I, I really went down... I think into a, I was an instructor model, now into, I guess, a a coaching model and more holistic. Um, And as I said before, particularly in the role that I'm in now, you definitely need to have, and I think all elite coaches do, you definitely need to have a a holistic view um, of the athlete, not just necessarily the technical elements. You certainly need to know all those performance factors. And right at this top end, there's so many factors from lifestyle factors that are involved that go into making those plays. So I guess, you know, from an early model, I guess to answer your question directly, I, I guess I went from a direct like instructor model to a, a holistic coaching model would probably be the biggest changes I went to. That seems to be coming up heaps in this podcast with different coaches and we had the guru, um, Jason um, Sutton was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about coaching rather than teaching and it certainly is the space if you're going to go into that high performance area and you should be doing it in all areas I think is covering all areas as opposed to just being a technical coach. I think that is certainly where you should be aiming to be as a as a golf coach in the future. Yeah, and no, that's that ex- definitely exposure to these programs has um, been great for me in that because I've been very fortunate, um, you know, to have a lot of that education just directly by being on the tee with guys working with 3D or sitting in lecture rooms and all that sort of stuff. Um, when the nutritionist or the 3D guy watching the sports psychologist walk directly with the players and that as well. So there's been a lot of, I guess, development that I've just had, just very fortunate to be, you know, have the positions I've had and had the opportunity to work with some of the, I think some of the, obviously the best minds in in the sport from around the world, that's for sure. Yeah. All that, all that stuff's pretty cool. And I've said this before in the podcast, but when you start working with high-performance players, they can actually, um, you give them a swing thing to do and they can do it straight away. You find out pretty quickly what you do and don't know about the golf swing. Yes, that's exactly that's exactly right. And you sort of, it is, the, I mean, depending on on player from player, but you sort of, I found that you obviously, things were pretty, you kept things pretty simple early on because you really didn't know much. And that was kind of all of what you you knew, but you do go down in this rabbit burrow of knowledge. And I sometimes probably think of, you know, it's nearly about, you just want to blurt out the latest things that you've just learned or, or bring that or implement that to everything, uh, to everyone that you learn. But 
the further and further I've gone along, does it most tour players, you know, probably like to keep things pretty simple as well, but you keep got to try and keep things pretty simple, but you could obviously have a lot deeper underlying knowledge than what you did before, but they certainly don't want to, you know, have the, you know, the biomechanics manual read out to them and know everything about, you know, some players do, they do like that deep knowledge, but from what I found, most like to keep things pretty simple as well. But you, you do need to answer the, have the underlying knowledge to answer those challenging questions when they do come, when you're working with that level of player, that's for sure. Or be, uh, refer them if you can't answer to admit that you don't know and then re- definitely refer them on or find it out. That's for sure, you know. I think that's, that is super advice and I, I, I'm a firm I'm in that same camp of saying that you have to be across that information but you don't obviously need to give that all, the, all that information to your students. So as a coach, you've got access to all this, this great technology, all these great experts in, these, in their different fields. How do you work out the, how to get that information across to the students standing in front of you as a coach? Uh, well, I guess the biggest thing, and again, I mean, coaching is a, you know, kind of a relationship. So you've really got to know that person in front of you. I think that's the first and foremost. Yeah, you've really got to know, sort of kind of know how that person ticks, how they like the information given to them. Um, I think that's, you know, it's nearly the most important thing of coaching. You know, some people, as I said, really like that information. Others don't. Um, I think you need to, you know, the whole assessment program, the assessment of the player, trying to work out, um, what they require, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and particularly for, I guess, for a role that I'm in now, I really see that I'm, uh, you know, a supporter of the coach and the player, you know, for, for the model up here is that we really support the home-based coaches. So uh, I'm really there to, you know, ascertain what the coaches, the home-based coaches would like. You know, I've spent a lot of time with the players as well, and you really get to know them through that. So you get to know what kind of makes them tick and you get to see them train a lot. I mean, the advantage that we too probably have a lot uh, in a role that I'm with compared to their home-based coaches is you get to see them compete a lot. So you get to maybe pick up on some of those things in the competitive environment that the the coaches may not necessarily see, you know, when they're just working with them at home. So you get to, I think, get a really holistic assessment of the player is the most important uh, element, especially with working elite players, covering all areas, but really having that, relationship with the player and again if you're in a, in a role like mine having that relationship with the coach is extremely their home base coach is extremely important as well now I'll, I'll, I'll put my hand up now and i know i've screwed this up in the past i've given too much information to a to a student and that's yeah. a put back pedal quickly so that can be a, a challenge sometime if you have access to that information giving too much to them straight away Oh, there's no doubt. I've, I mean, I would have probably gone. I would have done it more than once. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, I've completely screwed that up plenty of times. Um, just to jump back a little bit, you said with the when you uh, came back to work with in the junior program with Jack Newton, yeah. you were checking out talented junior golfers and finding out who could go in down certain pathways. We spoke about talent ID on this podcast with Scotty and a couple of other guys um, only a few weeks ago. And it's a tough space to be in talent ID in golf because there's no, there's no generic. You have to be six foot two to be able to play golf. You have to be this type of type of person to be able to play high performance golf. What was some of the things that you were trying to see in those talented juniors? Uh, well, I guess um, the first thing, and I guess I probably made of where I learnt the most, uh, there was a particular 
because early on in my Jack Newton days, I said I was that was part of my role. It was to go around to those regional academies and you know you might sort of say talent identify uh, players for the next level program for the state level program um, and get to know them and all those type of things as well. And I'd have to admit the first thing you get swept away is generally the physical attributes, not necessarily that they're six foot four or whatever. It's actually the hitting of the golf ball, and initially probably the distance I'd hit it. You know, I strictly remember back to seeing a young kid, you know, down the far south coast one day, a little kid, you, and he could just, you know, just absolutely smoke it. And that's the sort of the first thing that you that, that really sort of, as a coach, captures you. Uh, you know, that's the sound, the ball flight, and all that type of stuff. Um, but I think a lot of the times that can um, – it's probably the initial part, but in the end, I really don't think it's the most important part. It's the, probably the elements that you can't see or probably can't even test uh, that are the most important elements. So I really tr- feel like you can only really find that is spending enough time with the players. So I know we have talent ID, and talent ID is, I guess, what you, what you might call that initial element of identifying somebody, but – and I, I listened to that podcast that you guys done on that talent ID, but I don't think the ID is nearly done within the the development in my in my mind. It's not till you get somebody in a program and get to spend a significant amount of time with them because you develop that relationship. You get to understand what makes them tick. You get to have those conversations with them over an extended period of time. And for me, the whole ID for me when I look at ID or development is. How much more over time are they taking ownership of their golf game and of themselves? So to me, that's the ultimate ID. Is is this player stepping up and going from um, being dependent on somebody to tell them what to do to nearly to the other end is the coach nearly becomes the servant, you know, and you're actually serving the player and it becomes an equal discussion, you know, Um so that ID space again, you can you can kind of have it, but the physical for me can sort of be off throwing. And again, you know, I can't remember the exact TV, but you know, Wayne Gretzky and I'm just trying to think of the NFL player. You could, they had those combines that you know never stood out in any of those. So skills that are done kind of in isolation, not necessarily within the competitive environment, or it's a, a skill that is isolated, whether it could be a physical skill, a, you know, a technical skill or whatever that is is isolated. I think is a is a good uh, ID method. You really need to see the holistic person in a in an environment for an extended period of time. Yeah, and I think that's where we're kind of headed with that. With that, Chad was the fact that it does it does take time, and you. So I'm guessing with, with that space you you're in, you had to rely pretty heavily on the on their personal coaches and those people that are that are seeing those kids all the time and seeing what kind of person they actually are. Yeah, and look at in because I would have run around the whole New South Wales countryside running all various types of skills tests, and because it was part of what uh, it, it was even a, a research thing that the the government up here wanted me to do is to come up with some testing protocols through the regional academies to have some sort of uh, talent ID protocols that we used in golf because there wasn't. I mean, we had the old national skills framework and all those type of things as well, um, but. You know, the, the the thing about golf too is we have this handicap system as well. So the handicapper can be the initial talent ID as well, you know, and knowing how long they've had the handicap, um, we can we can kind of go into there as well because I've done a whole heap of um, – there was individual skills base, you know, like chipping and putting and all that. There was a nine holes thing. Um, and there was also like a coach's eye component, um, you know, and the skills challenge thing, it was nearly always the guy with the lowest handicap because it was a, a, a cumulative thing, nearly always won the skills challenge. Um, 
But then you start delving down and engaging with the coaches and they sort of say, well, you know, he might have the lower handicap, but, you know, this player hasn't played as long and I've given them a few lessons and I can really see that they're very coachable. You know, they'll go away and work on things. Um, they, uh, they are willing to listen. They're willing to get out of their comfort zone and try new things. Um, so there's all, there's all these nearly things that you can't see initially, uh, I think, are the real identifying features of what we're trying to identify in a player that really is going to probably have the things that you need in the longer run um, to get where they want to go or where we'd like to get them to anyway. It's a challenging space. And as I said, well, even even in sports where you do need certain physical attributes, they still screw it up occasionally as well. So you don't see um, top 10 draft picks. Those top 10 draft picks in AFL, for example, don't always go on to be the, the superstars of the game. They're always There's always players that are picked up at pick 20 or pick 30 that go on to be superstar players. It's, um, it's a challenging space. Yeah, because any sport is an integration over a number of factors, isn't there? And anything done in isolation is not a true representation of the sport, you know. So, um, I mean, the true ID is actually probably getting them out there to watch them in the competitive environment. That's the true ID. And then having those conversations with them over time. And again, to me, it's that greater ownership is what I'd be looking for in a player over an extended period of time. Are they owning this, what they're doing? Completely agree. Completely agree. So talk me through this role now with golf in New South Wales. So you're the high performance boss there. Is that what the role title is? Yes. The high performance manager is the role. So, um, you know, it's, it is kind of a, I do coach a a few of the players individually, but um, the primary role, as I've said, is to, um, support those players. I mean, it is. I oversee. It's multifaceted. I pretty much will oversee the whole talent ID program right from the regional academies level. So I'm <laughs> responsible for the, you know, I guess the de- development of the pathway and the programs and the implementation, overseeing the service providers that are part of those programs. Any other supporting um, bodies that are involved in any level level of, of development uh, or of the golf pathway. So it is certainly multifaceted, but more, I guess, directly with the athletes is, I guess, to somewhat case manage those individuals and support them and their coaches. Um, obviously, we have an objective as a program, which, uh, you know, we um, uh, come under golfers, well, Golf New South Wales themselves as an organisation is separate to one golf at the moment, but from the high performance space, we're pretty much all trying to achieve the same outcomes as Golf Australia, and that's to, to you know, um, identify and develop players that, that go on to be top 100 players in the world. So um, that's what we're looking to do. And again, you're even trying to do ID because as even the players go up to up to the next level, there is an ID to see who has got those features that are going to be competitive at the next level. Or you're really trying to see, you know, two or three levels in front of where you are. So that whole ID and development process nearly goes hand in hand. It's sort of hand in glove. And I guess that's kind of a lot of the role that I, that I do, but um, it's definitely trying to support the players and the coaches in their development, um, provide them resources, allocate those resources within a budget, um, and then trying to identify to make sure that those players are on track to achieve the program goal of identifying the top 100 player or identify top 100 players in the world. Because ultimately, a, a high performance program is a program that is utilised to grow the game. You know, obviously, people that are out there and uh, high profile players that are getting seen playing the Masters or anything like that, we're hoping to draw 
players to the game or get people playing more golf. So the high performance is, could nearly say, is like a, you know, it's nearly a grassroots program. Um, we are trying to use high-performance players to to grow the sport of golf. You know, obviously develop those individuals as well and support their goals. Um, but obviously their goals need to work in with what a you know an organisation's goals is as well for having a high-performance program. Challenging space, I'm sure, to have all those different segments trying to gel to work with that single golfer. That must be a challenging space to get it to work smoothly. Oh yes, it does. It it, it is, but. Um... You know, it's that. I guess that's just part of the role. You know, managing relationships, managing resources, uh, managing those things uh, is, is just is, is is definitely part of the role. Um, certainly, um, you need to be open and all in all those type of things as well. And a, a lot of the time, you know, it's you've got to maybe put your own individual ego on the table as well. Because again, we are here to. I, I feel that I'm here to help the players and the coaches. You know, uh, obviously, as I said I do coach my uh, a couple of players within the program myself, but the majority of them I don't coach. So, a lot of the times, you know, you just got to sort of you know bite your tongue at at, at times and 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 really just you know support those players and coaches. Obviously, even at this level, the players, uh, even though they're elite and and getting to that, some of them. Uh, once they start to work out what that lifestyle may look like as a as a professional golfer, um, you know they're still trying to somewhat of them working out. Do they really want to be pursuing this as well? So, and you do have those that are that are full steam ahead on that as well. So there's definitely a um, there's multiple facets or areas of what you you are trying to manage. That's sure oversee. That's for sure. I'm curious if you've had any players that have been identified as. To be, to be part of the program and said, no, nah, I'm happy with the, how I'm doing it myself and they've gone off and done their own thing or they all kind of jumped on board? Um, yeah, look, I've probably not in, uh, in, in, in recent times. Um, I think, you know, what, what can a high-performance program do? Like the way, one of the things that I look at it is a high-performance program can just potentially accelerate a player's development in that they, um, they can have access to resources, particularly um, access to physio and, and strength conditioning and psychology and all those type of things as well, um, that they may not have otherwise have access to either due to funds potentially to be able to do that on outside of their own or potential just lack of knowledge of what is uh, in those areas and how that might be able to help their game. But I think a high-performance program can accelerate it, but definitely the people that I'd like to have come into it are those people that feel like they could do this journey on their own, but really are grateful of the support and resources they could get coming into this program. I certainly don't want players coming in or people coming into this program to think, okay, I'm part of this program now. I'll just sit here and be a sponge and you do what you need to do as a high performance program. You really want, I want those people that are, that are hungry and, and we're on a pathway to doing this pretty much on their own, but, are appreciative of the support that they can get through a program like this. You, they really need to have that hunger and would be willing to do it on their own if this wasn't wasn't uh, the high performance program wasn't around. Um, it's it's got to be a two way street, doesn't it? They can't yeah, just come here and, ex- and expect it to be handed to them. They have to put in the work as well. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You can't. The, the program's not going to make them a good player. To me, it's how they come in and utilize the program is what will make them a good player. They do have access, I feel, to world-class resources and knowledge and all that type of thing as well. But if they're just going to sit back on the hand and think that the program's going to impose themselves on them, they're, they're coming in with the wrong attitude. You need to come in and be open-minded and, and willing to 
utilize the program, challenge the program, take everything that you possibly can from the program. Um, again, it's that taking ownership to me uh, of your development and uh, of your uh, of the part you know of your development and um, understanding what's required. Obviously, when you do come into a program like this at the very beginning, you don't know everything. Sometimes they feel like they do know everything, but you, they don't know everything they need to know about, um, I guess, life on tour and being a professional. So we do try and expose them to all facets of being, you know, a high-level golfer as well as a, a the tour life and being a professional golfer because they are ultimately going to have their own business. So we try and educate them again of all those type of things, all aspects of being a professional golfer. Um, but again, the further and further they go in, it goes on to me, well, are they taking ownership of this? Are they actually now starting, they've got their hands on the steering wheel and controlling the ship, not just standing back waiting to be told what to do or to do this. And ultimately, that's what that's what I'm looking for. That's for sure. Who's, who's, who's um, the CEO of their golfing business? Makes sense. Makes sense. So you said you're still doing some coaching. You've, you've, there's some players that you're coaching inside of that program. Who are you still coaching at the moment? Um, I've got I've got three programs that I coach: Grace Kim, Belinda G, um, and, and Josh Gadd are all in the amateur um, level. Um, and then I'm still coaching Cameron Davis. Uh, it's on the PJ Tour who sort of come who come through this program um, as. Um, the role is, I guess, prim- primarily managerial. Um, part of the role wasn't to take on any more new players as they come into the program. It is definitely to support their home-based coaches. So as players either drop off or whatever, I'm not taking on any more new players to individually coach. Um, that's just part of sort of the role that, I, that I'm in, and I think it's reasonable as well because there is uh, – I'd certainly not leave any players, and Golf New South Wales didn't want me to, to leave any players out that I had coached. Um because you know, there's develop that develop those relationship with those players, and I think it's just still important to have a, a you know my hand across coaching as well, because it is part of the role in you know, and still trying to improve my knowledge about coaching and, and all those type of things as well, because you you are definitely trying to assist the coaches, the home based coaches within this type of role, and the more knowledge and and still having your hand in coaching can only help you to I think communicate with the home based coaches as well. I completely agree. So I can see how that would work with the players that are in the program at the moment, how do you find the time to work with Cameron Davis when you're still – because he's obviously overseas playing and you're in Australia still and we can't travel too much with COVID at the moment. So how have you dealt in that space with Cameron? Uh, Look, again, I was very fortunate. Um, Golf New South Wales allowed me to keep coaching Cameron when I took on this role because they obviously seen the benefit of me – coaching a PGA Tour player, having that knowledge of actually going over to the events and seeing that firsthand and bringing that knowledge back that I'm gaining because you go and stand on a PGA Tour event, you get to interact with other world-class coaches, you get to see other players, how they go about doing things, plus you're just getting to see the best players in the world. So from a, a, a gaining of knowledge and then bringing that back to our players, I think is a, is a definite benefit for the program as well. And they were fortunate enough, um, Golf New South Wales allowed me um, – and with the, I guess the, um, the job role that I had, they did allow me to still go and travel over to to, to see Cameron probably six to eight times a year um, when I was able to travel. Um, going forward now, I guess in the COVID era, um, I haven't been travelled over. I had a <laughs> a funny experience uh, during the the start of COVID. I was literally going over to see Cameron. We're going to go to the Honda Classic, but go to TPI on the way over. Um, and all this COVID stuff was just starting to all happen. And literally, when I hopped on the plane here in uh, to take off to the US, 
uh, they were actually playing the, the the players' championship at that time and was still playing. And but by the time I'd actually got around to the other side of the world. I'd got off the plane that said that the tournament players championship was cancelled. The next three events were all cancelled, and well, I was scheduled to go and see, uh, you know, go to TPI and Scotty Cameron with uh, with Cameron at that particular visit, and they said, "Ah, oh, you've just travelled internationally, so you won't be able to come into the studio or to the, the factory." So I was literally on the ground in the US for 24 hours and flew back and got back the night before that they closed the borders. But um, so that was an interesting trip. But uh, currently now, I guess I've um, Cameron's caddy, Andrew, um, is more than just a caddy. So he's kind of been my eyes from a coaching standpoint, and he was even when I was going over there. So that caddy is and is, has an extremely important role. Um, but I just stay in regular communication uh, with the other, Cameron's other um, team members, with Dr. Harry, who does, looks after his physical side. Uh, he also has Neil Smith, who's a well-known sports psych, on the mental side. Um, but most recently, I just engaged uh, Rob Neal to basically assist me in the technical side of things with Cameron, not just swing technique, but, you know, club testing and, and, and all those type of things as, as well that you might that I might have sort of done a little bit with when I was with him. Um, Cameron really got on well with Rob. He'd done some work with Rob previously over here in Australia and, and Rob being on the ground, he literally just spent two days with, uh, with Rob Neal down in Orlando and done some technical work so I just get on the phone and um, you know get on my iPad I guess the beauty of technology these days I'm kind of there nearly in live time was up at sort of you know four o'clock in the morning because we're on the east coast this previous time and and just in sitting in a lot of the conversations uh, they might do some work and then I'd get on the phone and we'd have a conversation for half an hour or 45 minutes about some of the stuff that was going on or what Rob might have seen and so I, I think it's probably we're very fortunate that Cameron um, Cameron and I feel like myself built a very good team around Cameron. We all get on very well. We all work together very well. Um, so I have total trust in all of his team members over there. Uh, and Cameron does too, that, um, that you know, we can all work together to, to get that, even though I'm not over there. And the, I guess the part that I am missing, but it's fortunate Neil Smith goes to a lot of events, is just actually seeing him compete. And I, feel, I really feel working with players um at that level you really do need to see and compete on the golf course to see how they're managing various shots um and i guess before neil come on board and i guess that's that whole idea of knowing when you've got to a point where you can't help anymore i was a pseudo i wouldn't call myself a sports psychologist but was somewhat working on the mental side of cam but when i guess that message wasn't getting through anymore we started to bring neil in and, and neil's at quite a number of the tournaments so um and Harry's as well, his physical guys at a number of tournaments as well. So he, he, a lot of the team is with him on the road a lot of the time and they, they are very good at relaying a lot of the information about what's going on back to me. So it's very open. The most important thing is, I guess, at the moment, is just that constant communication. Awesome stuff. And, again, it just sounds like you've got a good team there and you've obviously been with Cameron for a fair while, so I'm assuming he's the same as every other golfer. He f- falls into similar patterns when things start going wrong, so you can hopefully um, get him back on track fairly straightforwardly online. Yeah, and it goes back to that point of, uh, as I said earlier, it's sort of nearly like the student and the, you know, the um you know, the instructor initially, it's kind of nearly now Cameron goes back, comes back to me and says, these are the things that I'm, uh, I'm I'm struggling a bit with. This is kind of what I'm working on to do it. What do you think? You know, so he's actually coming back to me and sort of saying uh, he's he's got the lead now and he's nearly just coming back to me because he knows himself so well. And a lot of things, as what you say, they're patterns. 
what do you feel about these things? So it's nearly he leads, nearly that, and it's, well, yes, I think that's great, or, or what about this, or trying this? And a lot of times it might be, for me now, a lot of it's just going through the stats, you know, here's some areas that you're struggling, you know, what sort of drills or how can we spend your Tuesdays and Wednesdays at tournaments or how can we spend some your off time, you know, addressing some of these skill gap areas? Because um, you're always looking, uh, we're very fortunate, I guess, with a player at that level, you have access to an unlimited amount of stats and you're always comparing about where they are and obviously have a plan for where they'd like to go and you're trying to identify those gaps. So a lot of the times now it's looking at that and just trying to identify those skill gaps and then bringing in those team members around to, you know, address whether it is a mental, whether it's a technical, whether it's a physical, you know, whether it's a strategic, whether it's the right, you know, you bring in all those team members and have those conversations. Um, around that development and improvement to try and identify those skill gaps. So it's definitely, a, I feel like a more of like a, a, a pit team manager or a crew boss now, rather than just directly a, a straight, um, you know, swing instructor, that's for sure. Awesome, Khan. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming, having chat to me. It's flown by. I've only got about halfway through my points that I had written down to cover with you. So I think we're going to have to get you back for part two at some stage in 2021. So hopefully we can do it in person as opposed to doing it online. Might be a, a an enjoyable time. Have a couple of have a couple of drinks as well while we're chatting. No, I really appreciate it, Brent. And as you said, like when you've got a subject that you really enjoy talking about, and an hour does fly uh, along pretty quickly. So it's been I've really enjoyed the chat with you, and um, yeah, I look for look forward to the opportunity another time if it does come along to have another chat to you. But just before I let you go, there is four questions that I like to throw at everybody, so yep. you get to answer the fast four at the end of the the podcast. So have you got any tips for coaches starting out in the coaching space? Yeah, I guess for me, to me, I think. Um, just see as many different coaches as you possibly can. Go and watch other go and watch other coaches give lessons. Um, and for me in particular, I guess from a career standpoint, and I don't know if this is another question, so I'm hoping I'm not jumping the gun. But um, I actually sort of took a role where I actually went back financially, but it was in a role that with Jack Newton, I went backwards, but it was in a role that I knew that where, it's the direction that I wanted to go. So I actually took less money but to get into a role that I wanted to do so I guess try and find out not initially just chase after the money I guess but try and get into a role where you feel like this is the area that you want to get in and learn as much as possible and I feel that because I've done that I guess other doors open along the way and created opportunities that if I didn't have that particular role that some other doors may not have opened up later on. Yeah, I'm on the same page there. I took that job in overseas uh, in China and Taiwan based on that fact that I was keen to get into that high-performance space and that was a stepping stone towards that. So I certainly would agree with that. Um, tips for golfers out there. So there's possibly a few golfers tuning into the podcast as well. So any any tips for golfers starting out there on how to improve their games? Uh, well, I guess being a PGA member is and, and, and being a coach myself is to, you know, I guess just to really try and find a coach that you can really work with. Um, you know, I, I do believe to get uh, to get better that it's definitely better to work with somebody on that. I mean, obviously you can go and, you know, <laughs> there's a plethora of information that's available through, you know, internet and all that these days. But what you need when you, certainly as you're going along, you need more personalised information and some of that, the tips that you may get online may not be appropriate to your particular swing pattern or whatever, but I guess if there are more serious golfers, I would it's definitely try and seek out coaches that do take a holistic viewpoint of your game, not necessarily just technical. Obviously, there is technical elements, but for those that are serious golfers, seek out coaches that 
have a holistic look at your development and game improvement. Cool. Makes sense. You have to find that person that you click with. You can't just go along. You've got to find someone that you can work with and work with long term. Yeah, I think it's great advice. Yeah. Um, Where do you see yourself for golf coaching in five years' time? Uh, Well, hopefully keep doing what I'm doing, to be perfectly honest. Um, So I'd love to be still doing the role and what I'm doing. Um, You know, the opportunity for me to, you know, just watch players grow. And I guess with the age group they're working with, you know, 15, 16-year-olds up to sort of 22, 23-year-olds or even those first years on tour, so maybe up to early 20-year-olds to see people – you know, really chase after their goals. And, you know, obviously some get all the way that they'd like to, some don't. But just that opportunity to engage with people that are really chasing after something um, and to be able to help them and provide uh, the opportunities through a, through a role like this. So I guess to answer your question, probably pretty much all just doing the same thing, but still, again, just trying to increase my knowledge, you know. Um, Again, this is a multifaceted position. So, you know, just trying to look at other areas where I can improve myself, not only as a coach, but I guess as a just a, a people manager now as well is, is will be important to me, yeah. Do you see any huge changes coming in the coaching field in the next five years? Anything that's going to jump out at, as being the, the brand new best thing coming out? Um, yeah, look, it's interesting. If, if, you know, there's obviously, I think we've ticked a lot of areas. There's still a lot of... Um, you know, I'm trying to think of the whole, um, uh, you know, the glasses and all those type of things that they're, they're wearing now, like, um, uh, you know, in that mental space. I, th- I think there's plenty of things like that that are still will be available. I mean, technolo- the technology curve keeps on uh, turning and turning, but I feel like those, um, uh, the ability to, again, to get into the head of the player at real time, uh, is very important. So anything around, I know they're not allowed to at the moment in competitive environments, but the opportunity to really get inside the player's head in real time and have an, a, a total appreciation of what they're thinking, because obviously sometimes we see a result outcome, but a lot of the times we may not know um, exactly what they're thinking. So I'm thinking a lot of times with Cameron, I'd love to have a, a thought bubble above his head while I'm, you know, while I'm watching him, you know, um, play a particular shot and have a full understanding of why that outcome for whatever it was positive or negative why that come uh come about so i think something in the mental space and there is a little bit obviously with um with devices wearable devices and that these days but um you know something in that competitive arena would be really really exciting to see you know obviously the rules don't allow it, but it'd be really exciting to see something in that space the players i think that television coverage are doing these days now is amazing more and more commentary and um players being mic'd up and all that sort of stuff i think is is one is great for the sport, you know, as a spectacle to watch, but it's also great insights that providers that the players are giving into the playing of the game as well. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, where oh, is there anything that you would change in your career or life up until now? Um, no, not really. Look, I, I probably, as I said earlier at the start. From a playing perspective, wish I'd probably given myself a few more years. I may not have reached any any further heights, but I certainly wish I'd probably given myself a few more years of playing. But I feel like I've been, um, I've had a, a number of great roles within my within my career. Um, so I can't um, think of anything that I've missed. I, I really enjoy the opportunity that I've had, all the various roles that I've had, um, the coaches, the people that I've I've been able to learn off. So. 
probably at the moment, no. I, I've, I'm real happy with with where I'm at. So I've, it's probably nothing I would I would suggest that I would change. You know, that is completely fine. I haven't got any issue with that answer whatsoever. There's um yeah, that's um that's no problem whatsoever with that answer. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you if they would like to get in touch? Have you got a presence on social media anywhere or? Um, not really. I'm not a big social media guy, to be perfectly honest. So um. Either just probably through the Golf New South Wales website. Um, as I said, I mean, I am on social media, but I don't tend to post a lot. I tend to read and share, I guess. Um, I mean, most of my social media handles and I, you know, are all pretty much all just under my name. So anyone that sort of, you know, typed up my name under whether it's, you know, they're not going to find much to be perfectly honest. So, um, other than what I, if I write, read an interesting article or something like that, I just sort of see them as particularly for. I know the people that follow me are more of an information sharing opportunity. But so I'd probably suggest just through sort of the Golf New South Wales, you know, website or just calling up through Golf New South Wales here. You know, definitely. Um, you know, any parent. I feel like I've over the years that I've had this role, I've gathered a lot of information about various pathways and I, I guess a lot of parents and players are coming, you know, completing HSC and maybe still wondering what opportunities and pathways may be available for them. So certainly happy to talk to any players or, or parents that have any questions about that sort of stuff as well, you know. It's all good. I will put in the show notes, I'll put some links so you can yeah. find find Khan and um, yeah, again, thank you so much for your time today, mate. I, I appreciate you coming in and having a chat to me. Really cool conversation. Um, that's that's my ex- excuse for doing this podcast is to talk coaching. I enjoy it. Um, talking with gurus like yourself and experts like yourself is certainly certainly good fun. So, again, mate, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Brent. Cheers, mate. Take care.